Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. This is Romans fifteen fourteen through 33. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you boldly and by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in bringing the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. And kids, you can be dismissed. Thanks, Sam. Um, while they're getting out of here, uh, it's George Vulgar's 66th birthday today. <laughs> Happy birthday, George. It may also be your birthday. Happy birthday to you. I was just with George earlier this week, and it came up that it was going to be his birthday on Sunday. So if you ever want a birthday shout out, just let me know that it's going to be your birthday on Sunday or whenever. Happy birthday. Okay, um, I want to mention something else um, to Kelly Gay has been, for November and the children's ministry schedule, she like kind of went back to the drawing board and revamped um, the whole thing and just tried to get some, some more people in. So, I mean, that may be you on the November schedule somewhere. But she said that there are seven people on the schedule for children's ministry now for November that weren't here at church a year ago, like newish, new. And, um, and then seven people that weren't, that were... So kind of coming back from COVID that are now on the schedule. And so that's really great to have that filled out a little bit more. We thank you. We pray for that all the time. Um, so we're grateful to God for that. We're grateful for you guys to responding. And I've said this a bit. If everybody does a little, then a few people don't have to do a whole bunch. And that's really a great thing about the schedule because there are some people over the last um, couple of years that have said, like, Kelly, whatever you need, I'll do it. And they don't have to. So like the McManuses are only on the schedule once this month, and that's good news, right? And uh, Jason Wright is only on the schedule once this month, and like the Cantrells aren't on the schedule like every single week. Um, And Matt Gay is still on the schedule all the time, but he's married to Kelly, so that's just the way it's going to be for him. But I'd really like you guys to, in particular, and there may be some more, but like the McManuses and Jason and the Cantrells, could you just thank them? Um, Because they pulled more than their weight uh, the last few years. And there's just been a huge, that's been a huge thing for us. Okay, this is uh, the second to last message in Romans. We, I said last week that he's kind of finished all the theological doctrinal stuff. And this is kind of, um, the, he's closing out his letter to the Romans. And this um, passage, he's talking about his ministry and his plans and stuff like that. And what you really get is a window into Paul's heart. 
uh, when you read through this passage. And I think he's detailed the gospel for us over, you know, 14 chapters. And here it's like how it shapes someone's, how the gospel shapes his understanding of how he should be following Jesus from like what he tells us about what it's like for him. So, so he starts with this. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So I'm, he's writing a letter to a group of people. He's never met most of these people. I'm satisfied about you guys, um, which is uh, weird language. Another translation says, I'm persuaded that you guys are, that you got it together. You're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. There's a little bit of a checklist there, which is useful, I think. Like, it's hard to come up with KPIs for discipleship, but Paul has some. And he says that you guys are not just good sometimes. You're full, you're overflowing with goodness. And I think the last, from chapter 12 to chapter, the beginning of chapter 15, it's been about how the gospel transforms the way that we see and treat ourselves and the people close to us and the people um, over us and the, the enemies, like it's how we treat people. And I think that's what goodness is, is the way that we treat people. So that is manifesting itself. He says you're full of knowledge. And so I think that's saying like it comes, you're not just doing that because I told you to, but you're, it comes from the gospel. You guys understand the gospel. And so you're full of goodness, um, not because you're trying to earn God's favor, but because you're responding to God's unearnable favor. Like you guys have gotten it and you're able to instruct one another and so that's a big deal. Are we able to tell each other uh, about the gospel? Are we able to speak the gospel into each other's lives? I heard a pastor um, years ago say about evangelism. He's like, we're never going to tell the people around us about Jesus if we, can't, if we don't talk to each other and even our own self about Jesus. If we're not like rehearsing the gospel to our own like, lives and emotions and the people around us. And so, you know, do you have people that won't just tell you what you want to hear um, but what God says is true. So there's something there. I think what struck me a little bit more is that he's never met these people. And so his language is a little bit weird to say, I've never met you, but I'm satisfied that you guys got your stuff together. Like, that could come across as a little condescending. Uh, I have a buddy that, preach, that um, pastors Fellowship Raleigh Church, you know, over in Longview. If I wrote a letter to them and said, Matt, can you read this letter and I said, I'm satisfied that from what I've heard from Matt, you guys are full of goodness and blah, blah, blah. They might be like, thanks. And who are you again to write? Like, why do we care about this? Now, he's Paul. And so, like, there's more to it um, than, then, than that. But it still risks, I don't know, it risks being a little condescending. But then the next verse says this, but on some points I've written to you very boldly. So you guys are doing a great job, but. So it's like that was a spoonful of sugar to make some medicine go down easy, you know? And so there's a little bit of medicine. I've written to you boldly by way of reminder. He doesn't really say what the medicine is. Um, he talks about his ministry to the Gentiles, so I have a feeling that that alludes to this, this um, tension in that church between um, Jewish people that became Christians and non-Jewish people, Gentiles that became Christians. But it doesn't really matter what the medicine is because he doesn't tell us. Bigger than that is this. He says, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus. Because of the grace um, given me by God to be a minister of Jesus. So um, let, me, let me go into some other passages. Roman, the beginning of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he's 
called uh, to be an apostle. Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy were servants of Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. God commanded me to be apostle of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So what I would expect Paul to say is um, by by the call that God's put on me to be a minister of Christ Jesus, by the mission God's given me to be a minister, by the purpose of my life, which is to minister to the Gentiles, because we're big on that. We're big on purpose. The purpose-driven life is a huge fun. We want to know what we're here for, like set the bar for me so I can get over it. But instead, what Paul says at the end of this letter is that it was a grace that God gave him to be a minister to the Gentiles, which is a gift. It's like he's saying, God did me this great favor to give this ministry um, to the Gentiles. And there's a ring of freedom in how, in how he words all this. So let me um, go back to, this is in Acts chapter 26. Now in Acts chapter 9 was Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a, he was, um, a Jewish leader that was persecuting Christians. And then Jesus comes to him on the road to Damascus. And that's in Acts 9. In Acts 26, he's before, it's Felix or um, Festus, I can't remember which one it is, but he's kind of recounting that, his, that road to Damascus experience and says that he's going to persecute Christians in Damascus and a bright light blinds him and, um, and he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul says this, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose. I mean, it's a purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you've seen in me and to those which will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes. That's his call. He's sent. Uh, So that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So that's his specific call as to the Gentiles. That's his purpose that God has given him. And yet here at the end of this letter, he said it is a gift. God gave me a gift. So I'm going to go through four points. The first one is going to take a lot longer than the others, just for those of you that signpost and keep time and stuff like that. Uh, But your ministry, my ministry, whatever ministry he's given us is a gift. Um, And every one of us has like several areas where he's called us to minister to people. So Paul, as I thought about this, Paul was a, he was a rock star Pharisee. He was an all-star at persecuting the church. Like on baseball cards, they had like all-stars. If they had church persecution cards, he would have an all-star card because he was the best at it. And then he's converted and has a radical transformation, and his mission sends him on a path that he never could have imagined. But to think about all that he went through in like to call it a gift. Um, this is Philippians 3. Uh, so Philippians, he's kind of debating with them in here that there are some people that are trying to have influence over the Philippians and saying, Paul's no big deal. You should listen to us instead of Paul. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. They think they're a big deal. I'm a bigger deal. If anyone thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I had, in those days, those were big deal things. Paul says, I had it all. I was a bigger deal. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. 
Like I gave up all those things for the sake of what Christ had called me to. Um, whatever works in whatever circle you're in, whatever impresses the people around you, whatever the bar is that people are trying to jump over, he had more of it. He did it better, and he gave it up. Um, Acts chapter 14. This is just one of any number of stories you could pick about Paul, but like what this gift was to him. And so this is, I think he's in Lystra, and Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, um, They because Paul's preaching the gospel, and so they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I've never really thought about this before, but, but how, I mean, we've seen some, some barbaric things in the news the last few weeks. How barbaric is it to throw rocks at someone until you're convinced that they're dead? Like, I can't fathom what that's like. Like, how big of a rock you have to throw at him? How many rocks? How hard you have to throw at him? What he looks like for you to think, yeah, I think that guy's dead. Um, but that's what they did. And if you stoned me and left me for dead, I might be like, okay, I'm out. Like, I've had a good run at this ministry thing, but it's over now. Paul, it says, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and he went back in the city. <laughs> and on the next day... He went with Barnabas to another city, a gift. 2 Corinthians 11, he's dealing with a little bit of the same shenanigans he had in Philippians where there's people trying to influence the Corinthians and saying Paul's not a big deal, and Paul's like, well, I kind of am. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, and I know I'm speaking like an idiot here, but I also dare boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And he says it. I know this is crazy talk, right? But I have far greater labors. I have far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Um, I, was, I, was, I had coffee with Pat um, Addicts up here this, uh, this week, and we were talking about a book that I mentioned years ago called The Insanity of God, about these crazy things that God has done. And one of the part of the book is about China and how in China, if you're going to be a pastor in China, you don't go to seminary, you go to prison. They don't ask you where you went to seminary. They ask you, how where'd you go to prison and how long were you there? And that's what qualifies you for ministry. <laughs> and that's what Paul's talking about here. Five times at the hands of the Jews, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times they lashed his back 39 times. I, I don't know what that math is. It's a lot. Like, think about what his back looked like. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We just read about that. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Who's weak, and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall, and I'm not indignant? The gift that God gave him of ministering to the Gentiles. Second Timothy, this is, so this is after this Romans was written, because he's writing Second Timothy when he's imprisoned in Rome. He says, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Demas has deconstructed and gone to Thessalonica. 
Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. This is the end of his life. He's got this ministry to the Gentiles. He's turned the world upside down. At the end of his life, he's poured himself out for people, and everyone deserts him, and no one stands by him. Like, just reading that and thinking through it, it is crushing. But he says this is a gift. May it not be charged against him. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and the Gentiles might hear it. Paul paid physically. Like, whatever he was doing before he became a Christian, I'm sure it was lucrative, and he was a made man, and he gave it up, and then he got the stuffing beat out of him on a regular basis. He paid emotionally. I didn't even get into the stuff in 2 Corinthians where it says, um, put a thorn in his flesh so that through his weakness, God's strength would be made known. And, and that happens. You know, God likes to hammer your weaknesses because his strength is made known in that. And we'd like to, I'd like to ignore my weaknesses if it's all the same with God, you know. Uh, but that's what comes with following him. And he paid relationally. Um, he, in a, and it's, I mean, I think a lot of you get this. At some point, you, you prioritize, like, when Jesus said, um, if any man wants to follow him, like, he has to leave his father and mother, your priority relationship has to be Christ. And so you prioritize that over your relationships with other people, and sometimes that's really, really hard. You know, at one point, he gets in Peter's face because Peter is willing to eat with um, Jewish Christians but not eat, willing to eat with Gentile Christians. And Paul's like, what are you doing, Peter? Um, another time, he and Barnabas, who were like, you know, the dynamic duo early in um, the missionary journeys, they have a sharp disagreement over John Mark, and they split. And so he's paid relationally. And, man, that just happens sometimes in ministry. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't know... Almost every pastor that I'm close to has had that type of experience happen, and it's hard. And at the end of this, relationally, everyone's deserted him. And yet, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus, it's a gift, and he means that. Um, I thought about this a lot, like, what does this mean to us? And it's just different. It's easier for me to relate to because my job and my ministry are so intertwined um, that it just comes across differently to me. You know, I had a, a corporate job and I quit it to go on staff at a church across town and then quit a church really. We got to start um, Oak City, or yeah, to start our church. And, and I've said this over the past few years, like in a lot of ways, Oak City Church is a dream come true because it's been 17 years to minister in the same place and to a number of the same people and to develop friendships with some of the best people that I'll know in my entire life are through this church. And so, and I do, that is the primary way I look at it. Like, it is a gift, you know, but it came at a cost. And it's not our wildest dreams come true. And there's been some really hard times over 17 years. And if you've been here for like, say, 13 plus years, can I get an amen that there's been some really hard times? Yeah. And I've said this, and I'd say this with hesitancy, but like, um, there's been a few times where in 17 years, it's been a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> like, it's just been hard things that I never imagined. 
But in all that, the primary way I look at it really is that it is a gift to minister in this place, in this, you know, ministry, part of my life ministry, um, to minister here. Some days it's been a better gift than others. Like some days it's the Star Wars Death Star that my grandma gave me when I was like eight years old. That was the best Christmas gift I ever got. Um, But some days it's been a pair of socks, okay? So it's a gift. Um, I I had coffee with Pat. Um, Pat, wave your hand. Pat's up here. Um, Pat is Susan Henson's former mother-in-law. And um, so Susan has told me about Pat for years, and I thought, man, that's a beautiful story, the relationship that they still have. And then a few months ago, Pat moved down from New Jersey. Uh, Your husband passed away a few years ago and is living with Susan. And when we were talking the other day, she said that she um, just, you know, prayed, Lord, whatever you have for me this last season in my life, I'm here for it. And like you could tell the way she talks about it, it's a gift. And part of the reason I bring this up is you need to get to know Pat. (laughs) So introduce yourself to her before you leave today. Sorry, Pat. Uh, um, But she, when they were in their, if I have my math right, when they were in their mid-50s probably, she and her husband had gone to Albania on some short-term trips and felt like God was calling them to drop everything and move to Bosnia which at that age and retirement things in consideration was not a great decision financially to make, but they really felt like that's what God wanted them to do. And Albania was easier and more fun than Bosnia. But Bosnia, from listening to you, was a gift, right? And there's no, like you wouldn't give anything up for that. It's a, it's a gift when we get it. I think about it for, you know, for specific people, but generally for for you know, everyone else, what's the essence of this? What has God called Paul to, and what has he called us to? How is it similar to us, and how it's different? And, um, and so we talk about this from time to time, about the theology of vocation, of work, um, that all work is sacred work. Luther said our jobs are a means by which we love our neighbors. And so your work is a ministry in some sense of that. And I think probably in a really big sense, the more you surrender it and think about it. I ended up reading an article reviewing some of this stuff, and they suggested this, that you can, there's three different ways you can look at work, look at it as a job, which they define as like focused on financial or material gains, a means to an end, as a career, and aims for social advancement or like success, or a calling, and I think it can be all three of these, a calling, so an inspiration to produce excellent products or services, and contributing to the common good, a way of loving your neighbor, and so they went through this like Surveys and studies about meaningful work comes through commitments to other people and causes. An analysis of workers from 10 different occupations said individuals tended to experience their work as meaningful when they realized how it mattered to others uh, more than just to themselves. They concluded, as it turns out, the way that people think about the meaning of work matters. Pursuing meaning in terms of individual success and achievement makes the goalpost of happiness become elusive. And I think that's a, a bit of what Paul's like looking at things the way Paul looks at things, that whatever God's called us to is a ministry. They quote Rain Wilson. Does everybody know who Rain Wilson is? He was Dwight on The Office. Um, and so they had an interview with him, and he said, when I was on The Office, I spent several years mostly unhappy because it wasn't enough. You know what he, you know what he thought? Take a guess what he thought. He's like one of the most popular TV people, you know, for 10 years. What did he think? I could have been a movie star. I'm a TV star. 
But why wasn't I like Jack Black or Will Ferrell? It is never enough. <laughs> he ends up, he's now doing, has a project called The Geography of Bliss. And he said this, he's learned that when we turn from being self-centered to other-centered, when we're of service to others, that's when happiness finds us. Meaning finds us, in other words, when we're not so focused on looking at it, for it. I buy that. Um, I mean, that's, you know, work. But God's called us to all sorts of ministries. He's called us to be ministers to our families. He's called us to be ministers here um, to our neighbors. And a gospel-formed heart views ministry to others as a, as a gift. Um, the schedule in Kelly and the children's ministry schedule, it is not about filling in a schedule. We have in, in, the, in a world that is like seemingly going crazier and crazier, you know, we have a chance every single week to love kids in the name of Jesus and to talk to kids about how much Jesus loves them. And that is just a precious opportunity that we get. It is a gift that we get to minister to our children in this way. And they get, we get people that we love and respect that are willing to spend time with our kids. Um, that is a gift. He's given us so many gifts of ministry. And the gospel is what got Paul there. So Philippians, again, Philippians 3, he said, I, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Uh, and for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And so it wasn't a piece of cake. He suffered the loss of all things. But now, like, I look at him, and that's like trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Uh, he's found something so much better. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so that's how he can view his ministry as a gift because Christ has given him something so much better. Okay, that was my first point. Like I said, this, the rest of them are not as long, uh, but they build off of that point. So um, your ministry is sacred. The people you minister to are sacred. So he says, in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And this is a picture that he doesn't use in other places. So instead of using... Like the word servant, a diaconos, or, or like a bondservant, a slave, a doulos, or an ambassador, or an apostle. He says, in my priestly service of the gospel of God. And that word in Greek is leitorgon, which is the word we get liturgy from. It's what a priest would do. And so it's kind of a weird picture and hard to get in because a priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of people, offer sacrifices to God, but the priestly offering stopped because Jesus was the ultimate offering. But now he said he's bringing, he's not like offering the Gentiles on a um, whatever. But what, he's, what I've heard uh, that made the most sense of this years ago was that a priest is, um, their function is to bring the people before God. And a prophet's function is to bring, is to represent God to the people. So when I'm preaching a passage, I'm, a, and this is a prophetic function, I'm representing God to the people. When I, um, when I pray through the, the list of folks that are at Oak City, that is representing the people before God, right? And so this is, he is, this is his priestly function that he is bringing these people before God, and he sees them as a sacred offering uh, that he hopes will be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Um, and you hear this in other places. So 1 Thessalonians, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. These people are sacred to him. Philippians, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ. The people we get to minister to are sacred. And he paints himself out as a priest. And Peter has said, that's what we are. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like, we've been given a ministry. We are in that same place. We are priests. So our ministry is a gift, and the people we minister to are sacred. My third point, you can take pride in the work Jesus does in you, through you, and with you. And so he goes on and says, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And, uh, and you hear someone talk about their pride, and that can be kind of a difficult thing. And Paul comes across as like, I don't know, like sometimes he's super warm, but sometimes he's like black and white, nuts and bolts, bold, brash, and you wonder if he could be a jerk. And sometimes he probably was, you know. Um, and so you wonder if that somehow it stemmed out of his pride. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about two types of pride. One pride is like that I'm better than you. Um, and the other type of pride is more like a Genesis 1 when God creates everything. At the end of every day, he looks at it and he says, man, that's good, <laughs> you know. And at the end of day six, that is really good. Um, and I don't know that God's being proud, but he's proud of the work that he's done, and that's what Paul is talking about. And so when I said earlier that when Paul refers to it as a gift, it could have been a call or a command or a mission, I think that's how I tend to think about him, like he's trying to prove himself or maybe how I think about me or us. And so that's the first type of pride. If I prove myself, if I get there and then compare myself to others and think I got there better or faster or whatever, um, but that's not what this is. Um, I've, had a, I've had a few conversations recently I've been thinking about this, that we have a, a lot of people who are um, entering into the, like the prime of their careers and doing great. And, um, and so it's fun to watch people kind of just work the plan for a number of years and get to a point where they're like doing as well as you could hope to do um, and be accomplished and rewarded and whatever. And I don't get the sense of like a pride in that, I get the sense that they're a little bit underwhelmed. Like there's a, a natural, healthy ambition to prove yourself when you're young, um, but then there's a point at which you have to distill down how much of that was healthy ambition and how much of it wasn't healthy ambition. And I, I do that, you know. Um, like Rain Wilson said, it'll never be enough. Uh, I'm, I'm a TV star and everybody knows me, but I could have been a movie star. Um, I just got a phone call from my high school and it threw my notes off sorry uh i sent out something in the weekly um it was a talk by a guy named arthur brooks to the um the alum some alumni from the harvard business school so arthur brooks teaches happiness at the harvard business school uh and it's like the most popular course at the harvard business school which says a whole lot on its own right and brooks is probably 60 um, he is a Christian, best I understand, 
It's not, the thing that I sent out is a TED talk, not a sermon, you know, but like there's a lot of, I mean, it's great. And so he starts off talking about being on an airplane and, and listening to the conversation of a couple behind him. And um, the guy is lamenting what a failure his career has been and how he doesn't think that anything he's accomplished is really going to last or it's worth anything. And he could have done, he would have done things so differently and just having this hard conversation with his wife. So he said, the plane lands and I get up and I'm getting my suitcase out and I kind of glance to see what's, you know, up with the couple. And he says to this group of alumni from the Harvard Business School, if I said, told you who it was, every single one of you would know who he was because he's more successful than any of us, like tremendously successful, but gets to the end and it wasn't enough. And Brooks sets that up to talk about his stuff on happiness and how, like, there is this ambition, which isn't bad. It's a healthy ambition to accomplish and achieve. But that peaks. He said that your satisfaction from that peaks. And he says at the age of 39, um, because most people, like, stop accomplishing the things they set out to achieve at that age. And he said, if you don't adjust, then you're just going to you're going to keep trying to get there, but you're not going to, and it's going to be like the law of diminishing returns. But then he draws another line in it that, that comes up about that time, and this is the, like, the, the way to think about the second half of things. And what he's really saying is like your satisfaction doesn't come from achieving things, but from helping other people achieve things. Uh, from not from thinking about yourself, but from thinking about um, other people. And I think when Paul says these people are a sacred and they're a gift, it's that type of ambition that he's talking about. It's not about me. It's about what God is doing through them, uh, through me, for them. And he makes it clear that he didn't do this himself. Uh, he couldn't, and he knows it. In Christ Jesus, this stuff happened. Um, you, can do, you can do ministry yourself on your own power. Ministry can become a distorted version of law, for sure, where you're proving yourself to God and to yourself and to the people around you. Whether you're in my role, whether you're serving the kids, whether you're on the stage, in the sound booth, making coffee, whatever it is, like it can become that um, because you're trying to prove yourself. But the deeper the gospel goes, the more you realize there's no law. I don't have to prove myself to anybody anymore because Christ has done that for me, and that gospel was a gift to me. And so you don't minister to people because you have to. You minister to people because you get to. And you don't need to go it alone because you can't go it alone because you can't do anything apart from Christ. And so you depend, and it's beautiful. And that's where Paul is in Christ Jesus. I'm proud of the things that I've done because they were only done in Christ Jesus. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And he could boast about that. Jerusalem to Illyricum is like 1,400 miles. Um, I had to look up Illyricum, and the commentary I was reading said that Illyricum is part of present-day Yugoslavia. This is a little old book. Um, and I thought, I wonder how many people have no idea what a Yugoslavia is and might think that Yugoslavia is like a dish their grandma made for Sunday dinner or something like that, you know? You can go look it up. But it's, he did a lot, but it's not a boast, like, for, of himself. 
um, because it's what Christ has accomplished through me. By word and deed, the power of signs and wonders, the power of the Spirit of God. Uh, and so, like, you can be proud of the work of whatever ministry it is that Jesus did through you and in you. And he can be proud of it because Jesus and involved you and obeyed you obeyed the right spirit and you can look on that work like genesis 1 and say it's good there's a false humility that says well i didn't do anything it was all jesus but that's not true because god in genesis 1 makes us co-creators with him he calls us to continue the work that he did and we work with him so jesus involved you and you obeyed and he gifted you and his spirit did the heavy lifting but he's happy for you to be fulfilled by the work that he called you to and so you can be proud of the ministry. And here's my last point, and here's where I cheat the most because I'm going to go through the rest of chapter 15. You have great freedom in how you fulfill God's call on your life. So he says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it's written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So he says, I make it my ambition. God's given him this call to take the gospel to the Gentiles, but nowhere does it say that he's only supposed to take the gospel to the Gentiles that have never heard it before. But that's, and I think Paul just discerns that himself, or maybe he decides that's what he wants to do. So he starts planting churches in areas and plants them so that they will preach the gospel to the people around them. And then he's going to go to new places um, where they've never heard the gospel. He has dreams for the Lord and freedom in those dreams. And it doesn't mean he doesn't wait on the Lord. You know, there's a famous passage where he's in, Turkey. He's in uh, Asia in their day, and uh, he's making plans, and he has a vision where a guy in Troas, which is across in, uh, in Greece, or maybe he was in Troas, but the, someone from Greece like comes to him in a vision and says, bring the gospel over here, and he discerns that's the Lord, and so he goes over there. So he's sensitive to what the Lord has. He has plans, and the Lord can change his plans, but he has plans. This is a quote I heard a couple years ago. Um, that has stuck with me. Ambitions for self may be quite modest. Ambitions for God, however, if they're to be worthy, can never be modest. There's something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. How can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little more honor in the world? No, once we're clear that God is king, then we long to see him crowned with glory and honor and accorded his true place, which is the supreme place. We become ambitious for the spread of his kingdom and righteousness everywhere from a pastor named John Stott. And that is convicting because we should have big ambitions for what God might want to do through us um, so that people would know him uh, because, because like they, their lives and our world would be so much better off if we were all following him. He goes on, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to him. So he's um, in Greece, he's collected an offering because there's a famine in Jerusalem and he's taking the money there and then he's going to go to Rome and then he's going to go to Spain. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings and they ought to be of service with them in the material blessings. When therefore I've completed this and have delivered to them what's been collected, I'll leave for Spain by way of you. 
And so again, you hear his plans, um, but those plans don't come true. He goes to Jerusalem, and there he gets arrested. And he gets to Rome, but he only gets to Rome because he thinks they're going to kill him in Jerusalem. So he appeals to Caesar, and so he goes as a prisoner to Rome. And the Bible doesn't tell us that he ever goes to Spain. We're not sure that he gets to Spain or not. And my guess would be that he has ambitions because we should have ambitions for the Lord, but God changes his plans, and that's okay. Um, a couple years ago, I was in Nicaragua and felt like God said, you should adopt this little girl, this little girl named Maria. And so my wife and I pursued that, and we went down to Nicaragua a few months later, and all the lights metaphorically were green. We thought, man, this is a go. And then we got down there, and they all turned red, and, um, and they just, we just couldn't do it for a bunch of different reasons. And I've always kind of wondered, like, did I get that wrong? Like, was that not an ambition that God wanted me to have? Or was it like, was God testing me? Or was God um, pressing? Did, it, did God use that to press that orphanage to find some family in Nicaragua so she could be raised by family? And I have no idea. Um, and I'm not sure it matters. You know, do you have ambitions for the ministries that God has called you to? For your, do you have ambitions from a ministry standpoint, a gospel standpoint for your family? Do you have ambitions for the people in your workplace? Do you have ambitions for your neighbors, for your church? Do you talk to God about those? One commentator said, God's not so much interested in whether we reach our destination as in how we try and get there. To us, arrival is everything, but to God, the journey is most important. For it's in the journey that we are perfected, and it's in hardships that he is glorified as we trust him. Paul ends this saying, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that God's, by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the peace of God be with you all. Amen. Your ministry is a gift from God. The people that you minister to are sacred. You can be proud of what God is doing through you. And you can have freedom um, to dream for what he might do through you in the future. That is, it's not stated as like a checklist or a set of things, but I do think it's a vision for like a life for serving God that is shaped by the truth of the gospel. It's not a have to. It's a get to. Uh, he's not doing any of it to earn God's favor. He's doing it because he understands the gift of the righteousness of Christ so that he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to prove himself. He understands the beauty of God's unearnable favor, and he's free to serve God because of that. He's free from the law. He's free from a law of God that says I have to, you know, earn a place before the Lord. He's free from a law that says unless I achieve or acquire this or that, I'm not worthy among the people around me. I'm free because of all that Christ has given to me. And what Christ has given him in that um, is a ministry and is a people and is the, 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 a way to accomplish things for the Lord and um, freedom. So I'm gonna, the band can come back up and we're going to take um, communion during these next few songs. If you're new to Oak City Church, um, there'll be a couple people up here and uh, 
um, they will say to you, this is the, the body of Christ broken for you, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. You don't have to say anything to that, or you can say, thanks be to God, or amen, or whatever you want to say. Um, but as we're doing that, uh, my prayer today for communion is that we would, um, we would have a sense of the freedom that he's given us, and that he would speak to our hearts about the ministries that he's called us to, and the gift that he's given us in those ministries and the people um, that we can minister to. Father, I'm, I'm grateful for Paul, uh, for this passage, for a window into his heart, um, and all those other passages that are windows into his heart. And he comes across to me as um, cut and dried, maybe because it's letters and we don't see him face to face and we don't hear a voice. But... Man, you hear his emotion in those passages, Lord. And I can hear his faith, Lord. I can hear um, a man that's fully convinced of the love that you have for him. And of um, while well, he suffered the loss of things, does consider them rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ because he loves Christ so much. May we love you that way, Lord. May you give us a love for your son that is that complete. May we not stop until we get there and understand that so many of the things that we're occupying ourselves with just aren't worth it, Lord. And may we um, see our ministry as a gift. May we see the people around us as sacred. May we be able to be fulfilled and satisfied and take pride in the things that we do with you and you do through us, God. And may we dream big dreams for you. We pray this in Jesus' name.